Psalm 85. The book of Psalms, Psalm 85. And we read this psalm along with our treatment of Lord's Day 4. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him, and shall set us in the way of his steps. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we read that in connection with Lord's Day 4. Found in the back of our Psalter on page 4. Question answers 9, 10, and 11. Question 9. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it. But man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means, but is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in his just judgment temporally and eternally. As he hath declared, Cursed is everyone, that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore his justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the point of this Lord's Day is to bring the consciousness of our misery to yet a higher level. We've noted in Lord's Day 3 that our sin and our sinfulness is our fault. We cannot blame anyone else for the circumstances and situation in which we find ourselves. We are totally corrupted in Adam, our first parent. 
Organically, we stand as those who are polluted. Legally, we're guilty in Him. Now we see that there's no way out of our misery. That's the attempt that comes out here in this Lord's day. Individuals try to find a way out, a way of escape that doesn't include Christ and the cross. And the Lord's day demonstrates there is no way out. There is no way of escape other than through the wonder of Calvary. Our misery is not just a natural part of life. Our misery is God's just punishment for sin. God in all of His wrath looks upon us as those who are sinners, who are sinful, and He demands payment. God's justice is what is at stake here. Now the question and answers of this Lord's Day are all very intimately and closely related. It's as though one is trapped in a room and there's no way out. We're trapped in our misery. But we're not so sorry yet to confess our sin. We're not so sorry yet to look to God alone for help. And so we try to find our own way out. We try to find our own way of escape. And so three attempts are made here that are in connection with these three questions and answers. First of all, is there a door through which we can go? Perhaps we can find a way that would charge God of being not faithful. I don't want to have to acknowledge my own sin, but maybe I can find a way out by blaming God or confessing something that's different with regard to God than is taught in His Word. And so what man does then is man tries to formulate his own idea of God. And he fashions in his own mind what he believes God is and who God is. And then creates a God different from the Scriptures who's not a God of justice, who will not punish, who simply is a God of love, who loves all and who delights in all, who has no justice whatsoever. So these three questions and answers have been asked repeatedly through the ages by those trying to find another way of salvation other than that which God has ordained. First, they appeal to the fact that God is not fair in requiring of man more than man can do. Is that really fair? God says to man, you have to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Man can't. So God isn't fair. Secondly, they try to say, but God really won't punish sin. God really is not that serious that he would actually unleash his wrath to all eternity upon those who are walking in sin? No. And finally, they try to say, but God is merciful. God's a God of love. And therefore, God will look the other way. He won't punish in his wrath those who are walking in sin. We know how the quotes that are taken from the confession and the handout demonstrate clearly and establish on the basis of Scripture the justice of God. And that's what's at stake. Is God just? We look at the passage then under the theme, God's justice toward the sinner. Notice first the justice of God's demand. That He demands that man love Him with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, even though man is not able to do so. Secondly, the justice of God's wrath. That God is a God who will execute His wrath upon all those who disobey. And finally, the justice of God's mercy. That God's mercy and love are shown only 
in the way of his justice being satisfied. We note first the justice of God's demand. The Catechism says, Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? We stand before that reality. God demands that all men love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. God demands that every area of our lives have to do with God and the pursuit of his will. God requires that every single person that lives man, woman, and child, devote the whole of their being to God perfectly. So that everything we do, everything that we think, every single emotion that we have, everything seeks God alone. We all stand before God as God's servants. And the whole of mankind is answerable to God. God created you, He created me, He created all men for the sole purpose of glorifying Him in everything that they do. What did man do? We noted man rose up in rebellion against God in Adam. But that does not mean that he may leave the work that God gave him. Every man, woman, and child that ever lives still stands before the Creator of heaven and earth with a responsibility to honor Him and to glorify Him in everything. God says, love me. Love me with everything that is yours. Work for me alone in every capacity that you have so that with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with the whole of your being, you're devoted to me alone. And use all the good gifts that I've given you, the money that you have, the tools, the natural resources, Husbands, wives, children, everything that you have in my service and in the pursuit of my glory. Even though man rebelled against God, that's God's continued demand. And God's living will then thunders from heaven. Love me. Love me alone and love me with everything that you have and with everything that you are. Show that love for me in every part of your life, as you're living for God and for His glory. Now we know man is not capable of doing so. Man cannot. Man is now living in the sphere of death. All he can do is heap up treasures of wrath upon himself. He takes all the good gifts that God gives him, and he employs them in his own service. He employs them for himself, and for his own pleasure, for his own promotion. He serves Me. Yet man remains a servant of Jehovah God. And God's will yet insists on his giving God all glory. This inability is not a matter merely of will. It's important that we note that. It would be one thing if man is simply unwilling to obey God. Man is not capable of serving God. He cannot do it because of the sinful, depraved nature that now clings to him. So that man is dead. He's totally depraved. He's given over to the pursuit of rebellion and disobedience against God. He's not capable of doing anything pleasing to God of his own strength. And yet, God continues to demand of him, obey me, love me with everything that you are. And so the question is this, is that unjust? Is it unjust for the living God of heaven and earth to continue to demand of man 
something that he can't do. He's incapable of performing. The catechism insists, on the basis of Scripture, God is just in maintaining his law. God created us perfect. God created us able to love him. We're the ones that squandered that good gift. And therefore, God justly continues to demand of us that which he created us capable of performing. We squandered those good gifts. And that's the answer that's given in question nine. God made man capable, but man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. And that's the point that's emphasized again and again throughout our confessions. God made man good, but man forsook God. And man stands now before God as one who's guilty. To try to understand this from a human perspective, just think perhaps of the fact that you're going to build yourself a beautiful home. And so you've hired a contractor to perform that work. And the contractor comes to you and says, but I need some money up front. I'm not able to get started unless you give me some money. And so you give the contractor a significant sum of money so that he can get started on the building of your new home. But the contractor then takes that money and he goes on a trip to the Bahamas. He buys a new boat. He buys himself a nice truck. And he comes back to you and says, sorry, I'm not able to build your house. Rightly, you say to him, no, we gave you the means. You need to build us that home. So also, beloved, with God. God gave us what was necessary to serve Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We squandered it. And God's demand yet continues. And it's a just demand. He has every right to require of us that we yet need to obey Him. Man then may not approach God with the charge that God is unjust in requiring of man something he cannot do. We would be unjust, for instance, if we required of our children that they all had to achieve to the same academic level. If we had a child who struggled to get C's and we say, you have to get an A in every paper that you hand in, that would be unjust as a parent. We may not require of that child something that child is not capable of performing. If we said to a man who had lost both of his legs in Iraq so that he's not able to walk, and we said, you need to run, that would be unjust. The man cannot do so. We must realize that God, however, is very different from us. God, as the creator of heaven and earth, may justly demand of man that which man no longer can do. We have no right to apply our criteria to God. And that's what man's inclined to do. We look at our own lives and we say, but this would be unjust for us to do, therefore it also must be unjust for God to require. We may not, as creatures, drag God before the judgment seat of our own wills and desires. Rather, with Romans 9, we confess, Who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Romans 9 verse 20. The very God is at stake. Man would charge the being and essence of God, as revealed in the Bible, 
as one who's weak, one who's subject to my notions and my thoughts. God is not subject to our thoughts. The arguments of the catechism, therefore, try to take God and bring Him down to the level of man and subject Him to man's criteria. And rightly then, the catechism insists, no, you may not do that. God made man good, but man, by his own instigation, forfeited those good gifts. And God has every right yet to demand of man that which then he's not capable of performing. What does the catechism do, beloved? It drives us to the cross. It causes us to see you may not walk down this pathway. You may not try to take issue with God and His being. Rather, you need to look to the One who alone is able to rescue you. The only way of escape from God's just judgment is by humbling ourselves before the One who is able and was able perfectly to maintain that obedience before our Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, and the one through whom we can do all things by the wonder of His grace as He gives us new life and new hearts. Secondly, the Catechism says, in question 10, will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? The question is, will God really punish sinners and sin? Many people deny that. They deny that God really will punish sin in this life. Now we would say, deep down they know better. And the way of denial is not the way of peace. It's the way of fear. If one goes through life believing that somehow God is a God who's not going to punish me, that one lives constantly in fear because that one knows God is God. Romans 1 talks about the fact that God reveals Himself through creation as a God of justice, a God of judgment, so that all men know there is a God and that He will execute justice. But some teach, while men are on earth, God shows love, God shows mercy. And as long as they live on earth, they're the recipients of God's love and God's favor. God showers them with earthly gifts that they then interpret as an expression of God's love. Even God's grace. That's the claim of those who hold to the air of common grace. The wicked experience the blessings of life and health and even spiritual ability to a degree, they would say. But then when they die, God changes his mind toward them. So that now, at death, they go to hell. But during this life then, they experience and know a certain measure of God's love and God's grace. Now, beloved, we need to understand very clearly God is unchangeable in his attitude toward men. And that's evident again and again in the Bible. God clearly is changeless in his perspective. God is not changeable. It's not such that God looks in favor upon a person for a time and then changes his mind based on something that person does. It's not such that our salvation or our experience of God's favor is in any way dependent upon our actions and our conduct. God is the one alone, sovereignly who ordained from all eternity a people whom he would deliver and whom he would save. And according to that sovereign decree of election and reprobation, God's mercy, God's love, and God's favor is directed. 
Asaph makes that clear in Psalm 73, verse 18. The wicked, they're set in slippery places. Don't be envious of the wicked. The wicked are in slippery places. That is, God gives them good gifts. They don't use those gifts in the service of God. And now what's the reality? The reality now is that they're placed more and more in a position of accountability before God. God says, love me. And instead they take those good gifts, money, possessions, and they use them for their own pursuit of self-love. All that they have, they're required to use in the service of God. They don't. They refuse to do so. And God then holds them accountable. And the Bible speaks of the fact that that accountability begins in this life. So that already now, in this life, God's wrath is their experience. They are being pursued. There is no peace unto the wicked. God's spiritual blessings are all through the cross. And the cross is particular. According to Matthew 1, verse 21, the word of the angel to Mary. Jesus came. Why? To save his people from their sins. But even more than that, the majority of the church world today denies that there is such a place called hell and denies that that place hell will actually hold people to all eternity who are the objects of God's wrath. Beloved, don't be deceived. The Bible is clear. Even though our flesh revolts against it, even though we want nothing to do with the horror of hell, and rightly so, we pray for those who are walking in sin. We desire their repentance fervently. Hell is a reality. Thirty years ago, I wrote a paper in seminary on the subject of eternal punishment. And already then, I was struck with the fact that writer after writer, contemporary and evangelical, denied the reality of hell. It was very difficult to find someone who upheld the teaching of Scripture with regard to hell. Today, it's become even more challenging. Some teach hell just simply means in the Bible the place of the dead. And so they say when the Bible is talking about hell, it just means the place of the dead. It's just a reference to the grave. The fact that their bodies go in the grave now and they're annihilated in some way. Now there's an element of truth to that with regard to the Hebrew. The words Sheol and Hades are used interchangeably in the Bible and they do refer to the grave. So that some passages such as Jonah 2 verse 2 clearly refer to the state of the dead after death. And they refer to the fact that such is their experience. However, there's another word that's used also through the Bible and that's the word Gehenna which always refers to everlasting destruction. Matthew 5, verse 22. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Mark 9, 43 to 48, another classic passage that teaches the reality of eternal destruction. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. God's wrath for sin and sinners demands everlasting punishment. Now some state everlasting just means a long time. It doesn't really mean forever. What about Matthew then, 25 verse 46, where it says, And these shall go away to everlasting punishment, but the righteous to life eternal. 
And the word that's used there for everlasting and for eternal is the same word. The experience for the righteous and the wicked is the same length. Heaven as eternal is parallel with hell as eternal. Others deny that God is going to punish at all, simply saying that we just have to look the other way from Scripture. We have to just ignore this confessions. Even though the Scripture and confessions are clear on this, we believe that that's really not very truthful concerning God. Now again, beloved, we are Bible believers. We love the Scriptures. We confess God's revelation to be found in God's Word. And even though our flesh cringes at the idea of hell, at the idea of an eternal place of desolation, reflecting the Bible, the catechism and the confessions make clear God is filled with wrath against sin and against sinners. And the fierceness of that anger is displayed throughout the Psalms, for instance. Psalm 85 here expresses of the expresses that anger cause thine anger to turn away from us thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger it talks here about that anger directed toward us and the wonder that god has turned it away that anger is described here in psalm 85 as fierce it's described that as which is the experience of god that is horrifying and it's that from which the child of God springs back. He does not want that anger, that wrath to be directed toward him. Other of the Psalms we call the imprecatory Psalms in which the author calls down the wrath of God against the wicked. Again, beloved, these Psalms cause us to shudder. But there's no denying of the reality of God's wrath over against sin. God curses everyone who's not maintaining His will and His way. And God punishes that sin in time as well as eternity. In time, there's daily suffering. Psalm 90 talks about the fact that we are consumed by Thy anger and troubled by Thy wrath. Especially that's the case for the wicked. Consumed and troubled all through this life. No peace. No happiness. We know that in time, God punishes some sins very specifically. If you're given to drinking too much alcohol, there's going to be consequences. Liver disease, you'll be a physical wreck. Brain cells are destroyed, and so it is with other addictions to drugs. Sexual immorality is going to lead to sexual diseases. Sins of greed and sins of covetousness result in all kinds of trouble in the lives of individuals. God's hand is evident in all the events of life. And there are troubling consequences to those who walk in the ways of sin. There is no peace. There is no joy. And we hear that warning as well. There are times we think that we can continue unrepentantly in sin. But then we remember David in his confession in Psalm 32, Psalm 51. The trouble the sorrow, the anxiety that is ours as a result of that attempt. God also punishes with the suffering of this body. There's death. 
And we know that death is not natural. Death is the wrath of God that came into this creation because of sin. It's the heavy hand of God's wrath. So, beloved, our confession on the basis of Scripture is God is just in demanding punishment for sin. The canons in the first head, Article 4, the wrath of God abideth upon those who believe not this gospel. But such as receive it and embrace Jesus, the Savior, by a true and living faith, are by Him delivered from the wrath of God and from destruction and have the gift of eternal life conferred upon them. And again, the second head of doctrine, Article 1, God is not only supremely merciful, but also supremely just. And His justice requires, as He hath revealed Himself in His word, that our sins committed against His infinite majesty should be punished, not only with temporal, but with eternal punishment, both in soul and body, which we cannot escape unless satisfaction be made to the justice of God. And where is that satisfaction found again? Through Jesus Christ. He stood in my place, in your place. He took that punishment and rescued us from that just judgment. God then, beloved, is just in demanding punishment for sin. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He has the right to determine all things. And sin can be measured alone by God. Man can't determine whether I deserve to be punished or not. God alone makes that call. And he does so on the basis of the standard of his law, as we know it in the previous Lord's days. God is not pacified as an angry man might be with bribes or with flattery. Human anger is passing. Not so with regard to God's anger. Human anger is not always just. God's anger is always perfect. Righteous, holy, and just. Now it's important for us to understand the source of God's anger. God's anger is rooted in His love. Why is God angry against sin and the sinner? Because He loves what's right. And we have to understand, that's the anger that the Bible talks about, which is just in our lives. When anger in our lives flows out of our love for God... We love God so much that we're moved them with anger because of His being offended or because of the way in which He's being treated. That's a righteous, that's a holy anger. Be angry and sin not. That's the just anger. An anger that flows out of our love for God. And that's the way all of God's anger is. God's anger is flowing out of His love. God loves Himself. He loves His glory. He loves what's right. And as a result, He hates everything that's contrary to it. To deny God's anger then is to deny His love. The love and anger go together. They're not contradictory emotions as they can be with us. We can be angry sometimes and that anger is a sinful anger. It 